This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'm going to start out by noting that sometimes in the middle of an interview, we will stop the series of questions I was in the process of answering. If the guest says something provocative that leads you down a different direction, this I think is a wise policy. So too, when we're putting shows together, something may arise that causes us to change our plan. Normally, on our first program of a given year, we'll take a look back at the year that just passed. But something has come up. Last month, one of our regular publicists inquired as to whether we might be interested in a book titled Dorothy, an Amoral and Dangerous Woman, authored by St. John Hunt. Dorothy, in this case, was the wife of Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt, and St. John was his son. E. Howard Hunt is a kind of footnote person in world history, having come to the attention of the public in the wake of the Watergate burglary. It seems that while five men were captured inside of the Watergate complex on that fateful day back in 1972, there were a couple of men outside running the operation, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt. Now, what was going on with that burglary in the first place remains a bit of a historical mystery, I dare say. But the cover-up that Richard Nixon ordered in the wake of it led to the unraveling of his presidency. And we have from the famous Watergate tapes themselves crystal clear evidence that the reason Nixon wanted that cover-up was because the name E. Howard Hunt got mixed up in the whole affair. Now, later in his life, the old spy, Howard Hunt, confided in his son some explosive secrets about American history, to wit that there was, in fact, a conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. Howard Hunt both knew about it and had a role to play in it. As you might imagine, these topics are of interest to us, and we plan to spend segments two and three today in conversation with St. John Hunt. In fact, Mr. Hunt was so giving of his time that we have enough material to extend into next week's show, and we plan to do that. Maybe the week after that, we'll get around to our year in review, look back at 2015. I would also note by way of Ford Promotion, we have every reason to believe we will be bringing you David Talbot, author of The Devil's Chessboard, before the month is out. But all that said, let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 7th of January. January 7th of the year 1610 that the Italian astronomer and scientist Galileo Galilei sees three of Jupiter's moons through his telescope. He thought they were stars, but in subsequent observations he noted that they moved with the planet. To this date, the four large moons of Jupiter are known as the Galilean moons. And in fact, they turn out to be some of the more interesting pieces of real estate in the solar system. On this date in 1872, American financier James Fisk one of Wall Street's more colorful and unscrupulous characters, dies from a gunshot wound involving a squabble with his lover, Josie Mansfield. As far as we know, no relation to Jane. On January 7th, 1953, President Harry Truman announced that the United States has built a hydrogen or thermonuclear bomb based on fusion as compared to the fission-based atomic bomb. It had been detonated on Iniwetok Atoll on November 1st the previous year. And by the way, this is a great segue to the story currently in the news that North Korea is claiming that they too have built a thermonuclear bomb. Since that's a lot harder to do than a regular old atomic bomb, uh, the news is being greeted with some skepticism. And uh, frankly, we hope the skeptics are right. 
Having the world's most powerful bomb in the hands of the world's nuttiest regime is, is probably a recipe for problems. Boy, a lot happened on this day. It was on January 7th in 1959, just six days after the fall of President Batista in Cuba, the U.S. recognized the new provisional government under Fidel Castro, despite some fears that he might have some communist leanings. January 7th in 1979, Vietnamese troops seized the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh and toppled the brutal regime of Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge. It was a rather sad commentary that both the United States and China seem to be sitting on their hands during all of that brutality under Pol Pot. And it took the Vietnamese to do the right thing and go in there and remove that insanely bloodthirsty regime. And finally, on January 7th, 1999, the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton began. He was charged with lying under oath and obstructing justice. Prior to this, Congress had attempted to remove a president only once. That was the 1868 impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson. Both impeachments were the result of sordid political machinations by the Republican Party. And lucky for the nation, both failed. Our quote of the day comes from actor Burt Reynolds, who once said, There are two things I've learned in life. You should never race a guy named Flash and never bring a girl named Bubbles home to meet your mother. Both of which I've done, by the way. He's pounding down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. For our quips of the day, I think we're gonna use two that we've used before, but they're both so good we're gonna use them again. The first comes from exceedingly rich guy John Paul Getty, who was once asked to point out the best way to get rich. Said Mr. Getty there were three steps. One, rise early. Two, work hard. Three, strike oil. Sound advice if we've ever heard it. And secondly, we have a quote from Henry IV, the 16th century king of France, who possibly doesn't get quoted enough. For reportedly, the king was listening to a pompous dignitary make a dull speech when a donkey started to bray. Henry turned to the donkey and said, Gentlemen, one at a time, please. And you know, that segues so beautifully into a a joke slash quote of the day that I'm going to have to go with it. We're going to call it a joke because I'm not sure it really happened so that we can really verify that it is a true quote. But reportedly, President William Howard Taft who was noted to be, let's say, a little bit overweight, weighing in at something like 300 pounds, was at an event where a long-winded introduction to him was being performed by Chauncey Depew. After apparently going on and on, he finally wound up with, and now I give you a man pregnant with wit and prudence. Taft reportedly went up on the stage, felt his rather ample belly, looked at the crowd and said, well, if I am pregnant and it's a boy, I'm going to call him wit. And if it's a girl, I'll call her prudence. But if, as I suspect, this is mostly intestinal gas, I shall call it Chauncey Depew. And no, we can't verify it, but we're sticking with it. Our anecdote of the day is as follows. In 1965, French lawyer André-Francois Raffet agreed to purchase an apartment in France from a 90-year-old woman. Under the arrangement, he would pay her 2,500 francs, about $500 a month, until she died. Upon her death, the apartment would become his. Such arrangements are common in France. Thirty years later, Refray died at age 77, 
having paid about $184,000 for an apartment that he had never used. Yes, you heard that correctly. 30 years after making the arrangement with a 90-year-old woman. As it turned out, his widow continued to pay the apartment's owner, Jean Calmet, until August 4, 1997, when she died at age 122, setting the world record for longevity. Boy, and you think your investments have gone through some bad luck. All right, our good news item of the week, and we're going to make this short because it seems like it should come from the duh file. But scientists apparently have discovered, they discovered this last year, that by God, getting a good night's sleep may be the key to reducing chronic pain. I don't know if anybody's surprised by this, but please take it to heart. And if you have some chronic pain, do what you can to get a good night's sleep. Our stat of the day, according to the Washington Post, is that 10 years after graduation, alumni of Ivy League schools have average incomes of more than $70,000 a year, double the average income of graduates of all other colleges. And for the top 10% of those Ivy League grads, the average income 10 years after graduation is more than $200,000. On the flip side of this story, we have this. More than half the students at 347 colleges and vocational schools failed to pay back, to pay back any of their student loans after seven years. Even so, students at these schools, most of them for-profit institutions, received $2.2 billion in federal loans last year. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a few months back for casting a wide net after lawyers for Guantanamo Bay inmate Mohammed Rahim al-Afghani revealed that he has a dating profile on Match.com. It contains the tagline, Detained but ready to mingle. The lawyer said he gets matches every day and finds that hilarious. We do have to take our hat off to a guy who's stuck in Guantanamo who's still managing to get a few laughs out of life. Was, on the other hand, a bad week for having it your way with the reports out of Mumbai, India, that a mob killed a 50-year-old Muslim man and severely wounded his 22-year-old son over allegations they had eaten beef, which is anathema to conservative Hindus. And yes, as if the world didn't have enough to do worrying about fundamentalist Muslims and fundamentalist Christians, and for that matter, fundamentalist Jews, we now have to add fundamentalist Hindus to the equation. And I guess we can predict with some confidence it's only a matter of time before fundamentalist Buddhists start raising some ruckuses. And finally, it was an ugly week this last week for fans of the Oakland Raiders with the news that the Raiders are intending to forsake their fans and move to L.A. again. This comes after they came back to Oakland and arranged a rather sweet deal with the city, which certainly benefited the team owners, but not necessarily the taxpayers of Alameda County. One might have hoped that in the capital of California, Sacramento, that uh, citizens would not be so stupid as to have fallen for this kind of chicanery, but alas, we did with the downtown arena. Will the Raiders go to Los Angeles again? Well, nobody seems too sure. Apparently, the San Diego Chargers and St. Louis Rams are all vying for the coveted slot of being the L.A. team in the NFL. 
Radio Parallax does have to editorialize it if you're the kind of person who still is an Oakland Raiders fan after all the crap that got pulled. Well, perhaps you deserve this. Of course, that opinion, like all those expressed on this program, does not necessarily represent the does not necessarily represent the views of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And uh, you know, we're not sure whether it's a good week for or bad week for Asian economics, but we do note that last month, ten Southeast Asian countries signed a pact to formally establish a European Union-style organization to allow the free flow of labor and capital between member nations. Together, Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam have more than 600 million people, which is more than North America or the EU. Now, we do have one item looking back at the previous year that it's a bit irresistible. It comes from New Scientist magazine. Their end-of-year quiz asked the following. What did researchers at Cornell University use detailed population maps from the 2010 U.S. Census to do? The choices were A, predict future population trends in which areas of Montana and Nevada become hubs. B, show how natural disasters would impact the U.S. economy, identifying Montana and Nevada as key locations. Or C, develop an online zombie outbreak simulation that showed optimal survival in locations that showed optimal survival locations in Montana and Nevada. And as you might well have predicted, the answer is C. Researchers applied models describing the transmission of infectious diseases to the real world to show how zombies would spread. By the way, Cornell University is one of those Ivy League colleges from which the top 10% of the graduates will be earning $200,000 a year a few years after graduation. Now you know why. It's their ability to think outside the box. All right, we like to do letters in this program, and when we don't have any of our own, which we don't in the past week, we like to borrow from the Sacramento Bee or other sources. In this case, we find it hard to resist a letter by a knucklehead in Sacramento who shall go unnamed, who himself wrote a letter in response to a previous letter. In the previous letter, which was, I guess, titled, Liberals' Reach is Not Worldwide, our current letter writer apparently got out his box of crayons and scribed, Ron Dale wonders how liberals could convince scientists in every organization to go along with liberal policies. Here's how. Most scientists work at colleges, and they get government grants for research. Stop the grants, and the scientists have no jobs. If the government asks the scientists to do research on global warming, what do you think the results will be? Support global warming, or your grants might go away. Yes, as we pointed out in this program in the past, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of dollars at stake in some of these research grants. In response to that, Roland Brady III, Ph.D. and Emeritus Professor of Geology, we think here at UC Davis, wrote back to say the following. I'm a recently retired university professor of Earth and Environmental Science and have conducted 35-plus years of funded scientific research. While it is correct that most research conducted at public universities depends on public funding and the subject matter of such grants usually reflects societal needs as it should, Neither I nor any of my many professional colleagues that I know of have ever encountered a contingency that our publicly funded research arrive at a pre-specified conclusion or had our grants refused because our conclusions were misaligned with some policy. Also signing off on this was Mark Dempsey, who wrote to say, Unfortunately, this argument ignores the orders of magnitude larger subsidies for conventional energy. 
The IMF estimates such subsidies at $5.3 trillion annually, far more than any climate scientist's grants. Even American agribusiness subsidies, as much as 40% of farm income, support a system burning 10 calories of petroleum for every calorie of food produced. So there you go. We're going to talk about some real conspiracies before this show is up. Now, we do want to note that idiots in Congress have apparently sent a repeal of the Affordable Care Act to President Obama for his signature. They're not likely to get it. And you have to ask, don't these people have something to do? We do want to give them some credit for repealing the No Child Left Behind hated act of the Bush administration. The whole thing was a rather spectacular failure. Lots of testing, lots of preparation just to pass a test. Lots of stick, not too much in the way of carrot. We're glad they're going to change it. And let's take a couple minutes to talk about the new study on how the wealthy save billions of dollars each year in taxes by methods that are really not available to you and I. And by the way, I got nothing against wealthy people. Sometimes in life, a mixture of hard work, talent, and dumb luck will (laughs) reward you handsomely. Sometimes when you get up early and work hard, you do strike oil. The problem that I think a lot of us have with the super wealthy in this nation is that they keep getting wealthier, and one of the reasons they keep getting wealthier is they find ways to shirk their duty to pay taxes that the rest of us are not able to shirk. To quote from a piece by Noam Scheiber and Patricia Cohen in the New York Times, hedge fund magnates Daniel Loeb, Louis Moore Bacon, and Stephen Cohn have much in common. They've managed billions of dollars in capital, earning vast fortunes. They've invested large sums in art and millions more in political candidates. Moreover, each has exploited an esoteric tax loophole that saved them millions of dollars. The trick? Route the money to Bermuda and back. The article notes that the very richest Americans have financed a sophisticated and astonishingly effective apparatus for shielding their fortunes. Some call it the income defense industry, consisting of a high-priced phalanx of lawyers, estate planners, lobbyists, and anti-tax activists who exploit and defend a dizzying array of tax maneuvers, virtually none of them available to taxpayers of more modest means. Two decades ago, when Bill Clinton was elected president, the 400 highest-earning taxpayers in America paid nearly 27% of their income in federal taxes, according to IRS data. By 2012, when President Barack Obama was re-elected, that figure had fallen to less than 17%. You know, frankly, I'd like to find a way to get my taxes down to 17%. The article quotes a Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the left-leaning Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, who said, there's this notion that the wealthy use their money to buy politicians. More accurately, it's it's that they can buy policy, and specifically tax policy. For some of the details on how these guys were doing it, I refer you to the piece in the New York Times. Also sounding off on this topic in general was Robert Reich, an article titled, Corporate Elite Makes Rules on Which the Economy Runs. Reich notes that Americans now pay the highest pharmaceutical costs of any advanced nation, while at the same time, antitrust laws have been relaxed for corporations with significant market power. As a result, Americans pay more for broadband internet, food, airline tickets, and banking services than the citizens of any other advanced nation. Bankruptcy laws have been loosened for large corporations, airlines, automobile manufacturers, even casino magnates like Donald Trump, allowing them to leave workers and communities stranded. 
Reich notes that labor unions have been eviscerated. 50 years ago, when General Motors was the largest employer in America, the typical GM worker, backed by a strong union, earned $35 an hour in today's money. Now, America's largest employer is Walmart, and the typical entry-level Walmart worker without a union earns about 9 bucks an hour. I don't think there's too much doubt that some of these tax loopholes need to be closed, but uh, how are we going to do that, folks? I guess the first thing we can do is keep talking about it. Let's take a short break and then come back and have the beginning of a long and interesting conversation, we think, with St. John Hunt about his dad, convicted Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stick around.